This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, the conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. In President Trump's one term, he was able to appoint three justices to the Supreme Court. Aside from the debate about blocking an Obama nominee or rushing through a nominee within days of a 2020 election, the outcome is straightforward. We now have a Supreme Court with a six-member conservative majority. This newly aligned court provides the possibility of upending decades of legal precedents on issues as fundamental as affirmative action voting rights, abortion, and gun rights. Linda Greenhouse, a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist who covered the Supreme Court for the New York Times for 30 years and is currently a lecturer and senior research scholar in law at Yale Law School. She brings her classic clarity and insight to analyzing the first year of this new court and what it means for the future. In her new book, Justice on the Brink, The Death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the Rise of Amy Coney Barrett and 12 Months That Took and 12 Months That Transformed the Supreme Court. Linda, welcome to Just the Right Book. Thank you. Delighted to be here. Uh, so I'd like to spend our time analyzing, as you have in the book, where we now stand on these major issues like abortion, religion, voting rights, uh, gun rights. And also how the standing of religion has maybe slipped from assuring treatment of neutrality to one of preference. But first, I would like you to help our audience understand more about the woman, Amy Coney Barrett, a religious conservative who replaced the legendary liberal Ruth Bader Ginsburg. On the one hand, Justice Barrett at a recent speech said, My goal today is to convince you that this court is not comprised of a bunch of partisan hacks. On the other hand, at a graduation speech to the class of 2006 at Notre Dame Law School, where she was an alum, she said, keep in mind that your legal career is but a means to an end. That end, she explains, is building the kingdom of God. So which quote? Linda, is more indicative of the woman who stood on the Truman balcony in late October of 2020 to be sworn in as the newest Supreme Court justice? Yeah, I mean, that's the money question. My (laughs) my book begins with that scene on the Truman balcony that really was just bizarre. I mean, the election was underway. Millions of Americans had voted already. And there she was in the Klieg lights uh, with, with the president who had Push this nominate who had nominated her before Ruth Ginsburg was even buried. Hmm. So, which is the true Amy Barrett? I mean, I think she her her remark about we're not a bunch of political hacks was of course made, and was oddly made at a very political event at the Mitch McConnell Center uh, <laughs> in in Kentucky. And of course, it was Mitch McConnell, the Republican leader of the Senate, that had. Uh, blockaded uh, President Obama from filling the Scalia vacancy and had pushed through the Gorsuch and the Kavanaugh and now the Barrett nominations. Somehow she persuaded herself the politics had nothing to do with any of that. I don't know. Um, The kingdom of God remark. So 
as you said in your introduction, uh, the, the rise of religion as the preferred right it's really a theme of this term. Mm. And of course, she was a vote that helped enable that. She was not alone. Uh, the Chief Justice uh, has that as one of his projects as well. Uh, so will she be the, you know, the one who finally tilts the court over the edge on this? It, you know, it, there, there's a collective. Um, I am trying to keep an open mind. Mm -hmm. on what her role is going to be. Um, and she hasn't been as aggressive in the first year, let's say, that in the way Neil Gorsuch had been. It seems like she either is being diplomatic or just more thoughtful. And it's so, so it seems to me from what you say in the book, there's not a clear indication other than her historical comment. She wasn't a judge that long. No, she was a judge for just two years. Yeah, there, I mean, there are very few data points. Right. Uh, it, it's early. I mean, here we are now. Uh, the court's been back in session for a month and a half, and not surprisingly, they have not issued a, a, a full opinion yeah. yet. Of course, they did something very major on September 1st when they let the Texas vigilante law go into effect with Amy Barrett's acquiescence. She didn't write anything. But to stop the Texas law would have taken five votes, uh, and the court had only four, Chief Justice Roberts and the three liberals. She could have given them her vote. Brett Kavanaugh could have given them his vote. Nobody on that side of the street gave a vote, and so the Texas law went into effect, and it's still in effect. Yeah, so let's, let's back up and, and go through that. So the, you know, the abortion law that's been in the news is the Texas law that does two things that are at odds with Roe versus Wade, and one is just like at odds with any historical precedent. So one is because it's unconstitutional to ban abortion, but that's a relationship between the state. The, the Texas law bypasses the state and instead puts in place what I think you'd have to call a vigilante, meaning somebody can take someone um, and charge them for well, having provided an abortion. Yeah, not charge them, but, but sue them civilly, sue them. sue them for damages. And the second part is where they, uh, the Texas law changes the date of viability uh, to six weeks from the 23 to 24 weeks that's the standard in Roe versus Wade. So- Let's talk about how will the court or will the court separate out the two issues? So the first one that came up was the stay of the law. Un under what grounds or what was the judicial reasoning for not staying the law? So the question for the court was uh, what's called um, pre-enforcement review. So the law had not taken effect. The abortion providers in Texas asked the court, urgently asked the court, stop this law from taking effect so that we have time to perfect our lawsuit and have it work its way up to the courts and get up to you while the law is not in effect. Right. So the question is, because nobody has sued anybody under this law, how do you get to court? I mean, a typical case is... Um, you know, somebody gets sued and they say, stop it. 
you know, put this whole thing on hold. And it, it, it's, a, it's a very deliberately contorted and baffling procedural mess. But clever. I mean, clever, because... Fiendishly clever. Yeah. And that's the whole point of it. The whole point of it was to insulate Texas from being accountable for a flagrantly unconstitutional law. Everybody agrees, there's no dispute, that under current abortion law, which has been the law for almost 50 years, uh, you cannot prevent a woman from getting an abortion before fetal viability. Six weeks is obviously months and months and months before viability. So there's no doubt that the law is unconstitutional. The question is, can anybody get relief from this law? So if a person provided an abortion and was sued by a citizen, could they then bring the case to the Supreme Court somehow? So um, the theory is that uh, the suit would have to go through, it would be a suit in state court, and the suit would have to be accepted by the clerk of the court and administered through the apparatus of the court and ultimately decided by a judge of the court. These are all state employees, of course, and that they can be sued. That's, that's the theory. Um, it's a pretty good theory. Uh, the, the obstacle right now is that none of that has happened yet. Right. So, so you know, can, I, I think it's pretty common ground or, it, no, nothing's common ground when it comes to abortion, but I, I think it's, it's a highly plausible uh, situation that these state employees can, are liable to sue, but first they have to do something. So can you get into court before anything has happened? So will anything, any incident bring back to the Supreme Court the question of staying the law? Or will it have to go through what could be an extended process and remain law until that happens? Well, the court... A couple of weeks ago, earlier this month, heard arguments in two cases, one brought by the providers, the other brought by the United States, by the Biden by the administration of, on behalf of the government. Right. And the claim there is that um, aside from all this procedural mess, the Texas law is an affront to the sovereign interests of the United States mm -hmm. because Texas is um, flagrantly defying constitutional laws interpreted by the Supreme Court and shouldn't be allowed to get away with that. And so the, the government as the f government uh, in defense of the federal system, which assumes that states are bound by federal law under the Supremacy Clause, um, went into court on that basis. So have he, they agreed to hear that yet? They, they heard it. They heard that case and the private provider's case. But they haven't ruled. They haven't ruled yet. So in answer to your question of, you know, is anything going to happen, they've taken both those cases now under advisement. Yeah. Um, and presumably they've taken a vote. Uh, of course, we don't know what that vote is. And an opinion in one or both cases has been assigned, and they're working on it. So eventually we'll hear something. So one of the things that occurred to me as I was reading the discussions in the book about this is, you know, it almost got me back to thinking about the framers of the Constitution, right, where there was the issue of was this a confederation of states or states consolidation? Because you could see if all of a sudden states can carve out 
um, well, this doesn't apply to me. Well, New York could say, you know, no guns and and California could say something else. I mean, it would seem to me, even if the justices who want to change the abortion law would be nervous about what this all looks like as a rollout if Texas could get away with this. Well, this came up in the argument, actually. And and uh, the, the government made the argument and several of the conservative justices and liberal justices both uh, picked up on it, which would be, okay, if we let Texas uh, devolve its enforcement mechanism of this law onto any private citizen that somehow... And cares. bypassing the Constitution. Uh, right. Um, or not even the bypassing the Constitution part, just, just we, the state, we have nothing to do with this. So let's say, hypothetically, a blue state that doesn't like where the court's been going on guns says, okay, we don't care what the court has said about guns. Uh, we don't want that to apply here. And so any one of our citizens is empowered by us, the state, uh, to sue whoever they know has a gun. Uh, so that seemed to sort of get the attention, certainly, of uh, Justice Kavanaugh asked mm -hmm. about it. Um, the whole thing is so bizarre and totally unprecedented. It's totally in a brand new landscape. So it's, you know, it's, it's just really interesting. We'll be right back in our conversation with Linda Greenhouse, the author of Justice on the Brink, after a word from our sponsor. Discover your holiday love story with Audible. Listen to exclusive stories, original podcasts, and more. You can enjoy brand new Audible originals like Hold Me Closer, Tony Danzig, and There's Something About Mary and Christmas podcast. Woof. Keep the fire going with romance favorites like Eight Winter Nights and Nick and Noel's Christmas playlists. Tis the season to get cozy. Go to audible.com slash holiday romance to find your holiday love story. Listen now, only from Audible. So talk about unprecedented. There's another abortion case that's in Mississippi where they are banning abortions after uh, 15 weeks. And historically, if I read it correctly, the Supreme Court has been unwilling to take those cases because the precedent is Roe versus Wade. So what was the basis for what was the basis in the thinking for accepting the Mississippi case? Well, your, your observation is correct. I mean, the red states, the anti-abortion states, have been, you know, flooding the lower courts with um, cases that are flagrantly unconstitutional. Get get struck down by a district court, uh, goes up to the courts of appeals. The courts of appeals, as the court of appeals did in this Mississippi case uh, strikes down the law saying there's clear precedent on the books, which is that before fetal viability, a woman has an absolute right to terminate a pregnancy. So why would the court take this case? That, I think the answer has to be there's a critical mass of justices who don't like the current law and see this case as a vehicle for undermining 
the right to abortion. So I chronicle in the book uh, the, the fact that it took months of private discussion and let's assume negotiation behind the scenes among the justices to decide what to do with Mississippi's appeal. If the court had acted as the court has acted for years, they just would have denied the appeal. And the lower court decision that struck down the law would have been the last word. But they took the case, and, and there's no reason to take the case except they want to change the law. But it's legal for them to take the case. Oh, the court can take any case no, Whatever they want. I mean, well, that, that's an overstatement. The court can take any case that, that falls within the jurisdiction of a, the federal courts as a whole, and B, the Supreme Court specifically. Case, if a case is not in their jurisdiction, if it doesn't present a live controversy, for instance, the federal courts have no jurisdiction. But, but clearly the court had a perfect right to take this case. The question is, why did they take the case? You know, so one of the things I thought about, it, so Roe versus Wade, which passed in 70... It was decided in 1973. 1973, was a 7-2 vote in favor of uh, banning abortion. No, in favor of the right to abortion. The right to, uh, the right to have an abortion. When did abortion, what were the circumstances that made abortion such a partisan issue? Because it wasn't then, it was a vote of seven to two. And in fact, Ruth Bader Ginsburg at her confirmation hearings in 93 said that she was pro-abortion and she got approved 78 to 22. Oh, I think it was like 98 to 2, actually. Oh, well, even more to the yeah, point. Yeah, No, well, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, so at the time that the court decided Roe against Wade, the Gallup poll indicated that there was overwhelming support for the notion that the decision for an abortion should be between a woman and her doctor, government out of the picture. Uh, abortion had been criminalized uh, for decades, and there had been a, a, a growing sense in the country, first among the medical profession, against uh, within the elite ranks of the legal profession, eventually by the women's movement. It was not a big issue for the women's movement until somewhat later, that uh, the notion of criminalizing abortion, driving women to the back alleys, you know, risk to their lives, that it was just time to reform that, that situation. What happened was, uh, in the aftermath of Roe, there was not, as many people think there was, a kind of immediate backlash. That's, that's a myth. Mm -hmm. What happened was smart Republican operatives around Richard Nixon, who was president at the time, said to him, you know, this is an opening for us. He, too, had three appointees, right? He Nixon. did. Uh, he, he did. He it was... Uh, or, or yes, uh, and and three of he had four appointments, and three of them were in the majority in in Roe. So that the, the Republican Party was really the the pro choice party um, historically. Why? Because uh, Catholic voters were t tended to be Democrats, and so ha, huh. I hadn't thought about yeah, that switch yeah. that happened. Uh, so what happened was these Republican operatives said, you know, we we've been so successful with our strategy in the South and playing the race card in the South. And we've driven 
uh, white Southern voters away from the Democratic Party, uh, by the, the, the Southern strategy. You know, we can have a Northern strategy and we can pull the ethnic, urban, Catholic voters away from their traditional home in the Democratic Party if we make our issue abortion. And we can use it as a tool of party realignment. Wow. Didn't happen overnight. It took about 10 years. It fueled the rise of Ronald Reagan. I mean, the first, hmm. the first, Republic, the first uh, presidential cycle after Roe was decided in 73 was 1976. And the Republican Party platform at that time uh, offered a big tent on abortion. They weren't going to come out against abortion because so many Republicans were pro. Were pro. Uh, it wasn't until the platform of 1980 that the Republican Party adopted an anti-abortion plank. So it was a it was a political strategy. It was to get because the other thing that's curious, which I hadn't quite focused on, is the religious makeup of the Supreme Court is uh, one Protestant or one one non-practicing Catholic, and it's predominantly Catholics and Jews. That's correct. I mean— Was that deliberate to get Catholic justices on the bench? Well, you know, you can get a debate going. What I say in the book, which is my belief based on my observation, is that— um, all the conservative Catholic justices, and I include in this uh, Neil Gorsuch, who currently is an Episcopalian. He was raised Catholic. He went to the same Jesuit boys' school that Brett Kavanaugh went to. Mm -hmm. So I count him as, as having Catholic roots. Uh, they all were appointed by uh, Republican presidents who were pledged under party platform to pick judges and justices who would overturn Roe against Wade. And, you know, a president can't ask a potential nominee, by the way, would you overturn Roe? If the president asked that question, the nominee couldn't right. answer it. So, so religion, Catholicism is kind of a proxy for the question that can't be asked and couldn't be answered. That's my view of the matter. So, Linda, that were, you said there was a Gallup poll or whatever kind of poll in the 70s. Wouldn't a Gallup poll today show the majority of people in favor of pro-choice? It, indeed, it, the latest poll shows about 80% of the public does not want the Supreme Court to overturn Roe against Wade, like 80%. You know, it, but now it doesn't matter, or seemingly that won't matter if public opinion. So what do you think will happen this year on the court? So we've got the Texas case and the Mississippi case. Knowing what what you talk about in the book about the standing of the um, each of the justices, what's your speculation about what will happen? Well, as I said earlier, I mean, there's no reason to have taken this case except unless. that unless they want to make a change. How fundamental a change they want to make? Do they want to overturn Roe explicitly or do they simply want to overturn it functionally without quite admitting what they're doing? Uh, you know, we'll we'll see in th this term. But my my view of the implications of this, so the fetal viability rule, which started with Roe and has been maintained for close to half a century, uh, the rule being that before fetal viability, a woman has a right to choose to terminate a pregnancy. 
that's been the firewall that has protected the right to abortion, right. even as the court has nibbled away and enabled states to put up all kinds of obstacles. Barriers. Barriers. Admittance, you know, you conditions. Know, conditions, waiting periods, you know. Counseling. All, kind, all that kind of stuff. All that stuff. Uh, but at the end of the day, the woman has the right. Once you get rid of the viability, what I call firewall, where are you? Mm -hmm. what's, the, what's the guiding principle? 15 weeks? Okay, why not 12 weeks? Why not six weeks like in Texas? Why not zero weeks as some states are trying to do, you know, a ban abortion at the moment of fertilization? So it's, it's crucially important to maintain that firewall, the principle behind it. And if the court does away with it, breaches it by upholding the Minnesota 15-week ban, it's very hard to think that um, the right to abortion is still is still there. Yeah. So many of us think about abortion as aligned with a religion, which in some cases, you know, is, as you're talking about, the original strategy was not about religion. It was a political strategy, but it's often associated with that. So I want to go to the issue of religion because it was fascinating to me to read, um, which I had never understood the foundational principles um, regarding religion, are two clauses. The Establishment Clause, which prevents the government from endorsing or coercing a religious practice, and the Free Exercise Clause, which requires the government to leave the believer free to practice their faith. So how are these clauses getting changed and redefined? Right. So there's some obviously inherent tension between the two. Right. Because to the extent that the government gives free reign to somebody's free exercise, that is to say, for instance, uh, giving all kinds of exemptions to laws that ought to apply to everybody, but somebody says, I have my religion, says I can't follow this law. At, at, at a certain point, that's going to, or at least notionally, interfere with the Establishment Clause and amount to a government thumb on the scale for religion to the extent of uh, saying that religion uh, has a privileged place in our civil society. Uh, the tension was always kind of there, but um, resolved by, as uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist, the current Chief Justice's mentor and, and predecessor, said, we have to leave some play in the joints between those two uh, clauses. What's happened in recent years, and this predated actually uh, the Donald Trump rise of the three Trump justices, um, the, the Establishment Clause has essentially been effaced, and the Free Exercise Clause has been given much wider reign than it, it's had traditionally. So uh, we saw that really in spades this term as... Um, a lot of COVID rules, A lot right? of COVID rules where the question was, could the government trying to stop the spread of the pandemic and, and issue uh, capacity limitations on indoor gatherings of all kinds and all different kinds of places, to the extent that that ran up against the number of worshipers that a church would like to be able to accommodate, does that violate the free exercise of religion? And the court before 
Ruth Ginsburg died before Amy Barrett came on the court, the court said, no, uh, the court yeah. upheld those regulations um, by votes of five to four with Chief Justice Roberts joined by the then four liberal justices. The, within weeks of Amy Barrett coming on the court, another case like that presented itself, a case from New York, and the court flipped. And five to four, religion prevailed over public health. That was a very significant turn of events. And uh, it went on from there. That was not the only case that continued throughout the, pretty much the duration of the term. And, and the court ended up having made, you know, really substantial new law about free exercise. And, and you know, we'll continue to see that playing out this term and in terms to come. But Linda, one of the things that surprised me, and I, I, I'm not sure I have this right, but when you had talked about you know, we've obviously heard about a religious organization not wanting to provide contraception or ins or, or insurance to cover abortion because it's at odds with their religious conditions. You know, let's say you could make an argument and say that you understand that. But what surprised me is that general non-religious law, let's say um, the um, inability to discriminate against an employee because of pregnancy or a disability or something, that that some of the cases have allowed religious organizations to say that general laws that have nothing to do with religion don't apply to them. Did I, did I read that right? Yes, you did. Um, so what's the reasoning of that? So the reasoning there, and it's something that's gotten, that's kind of jumped the shark, you might say, um, the, the lower courts had created something called a ministerial exception to anti-discrimination laws. So that meant, you know, if you, with the kind of limited um, look at it, it made perfect sense. I mean, you're not going to tell the Catholic Church that it violates the federal law against sex discrimination on the job to refuse to have women as priests, right? So No, right. Right. So a church... Any, any church should be free to choose its leadership and right. run its religious business, obviously, without uh, the government butting in. But what about uh, the teachers in a, in a religious school? So this was a case that came up, uh, not in this past term, but the term ago. Um, there were two teachers of, in parochial schools, um, one was uh, a victim of uh, age discrimination. The other was a victim of disability discrimination. And they sued under the relevant federal laws. Neither of them had special training in religion. They taught uh, lower grades, just kind of basic third grade, whatever. Uh, they did, you know, bring the kids to the chapel and they had something to do with... Um, uh, you know, making sure that the daily prayers were said and so on. But they were not teaching religion. Uh, the lower courts had found that the ministerial exception did not extend to employees like that and that they had a right to pursue their anti-discrimination anti rights under federal law. And the Supreme Court um, overturned that and extended the ministerial exception. So that's an example of, you know, what we were talking creep. about earlier. Like the, mission creep. Mission creep, indeed. That's very good. Uh, you know, the, the privileging of religion in, in you know, all, all, in all aspects. 
So we could spend a lot of time on each of these topics, but I'm going to move us on to voting rights. Um, So voting rights are now very front and center and have been even before, you know, Trump um, wanted to object to the outcome of the 2020 election. There's been erosion. So uh, in reading your book, there are three. We have the Voting Rights Act of 1965 that established um, a clear set of laws to protect voting rights of all of our citizens. And there are two, three key sections that you talk about in the book, section five, two, and four. Um, and it seems like these are now being called into question and diluted. So share with us what those sections are and how they're getting diluted and what does that mean? Yeah, so they're more than getting diluted. Uh, so uh, Chief Justice Roberts wrote for a five to four majority back in 2013, a case called Shelby County, people might have heard about, that basically um, disabled Section 5, which was a very key section that required uh, states and parts of states that had histories of uh, dis- discrimination in access to the ballot, uh, required them to get federal preclearance, federal permission from the Justice Department or from a federal court before they made any changes in their voting uh, rules. And Section 4 was the section that um, listed those jurisdictions. So uh, that's out the window. There's no more preclearance. The case that was decided at the very end of this last term— And how did they justify that under the law that existed? So the majority opinion by Chief Justice Roberts said, well, things have changed. You know, things are better now. Uh, You know, there's no obstacle to black people voting. And so um, this list of of jurisdictions under Section 4 is really outdated. It hasn't been changed for a long time. Because that was a, just so that we clarify it, because that section was talking about historical discrimination. So Chief Roberts was saying that history is no longer applicable. Correct. There are no longer historically discriminating practices. Is that, do I have that correct? There's not enough to justify the kind of, you know, heavy boot of the federal government having to give permission to these jurisdictions to make any any changes. And so, you know, technically the Shelby County decision left it open for Congress to, to amend Section 4, do a new study, list different, fewer, different other uh, jurisdictions that would be covered. But one had to know that Congress is not going to do that as just as a matter of political reality. So, so Section 5 is dead in the water. There's no more preclearance. That leaves Section 2. Section 2 applies to the whole country, and it uh, prevents, uh, it it prohibits any voting practice that has the purpose or effect. It doesn't require intent, purpose or effect of uh, making it more difficult for uh, certain groups to vote than other groups. So that was the section that was at issue in the big voting rights case this last term. Section 2 was used to challenge uh, voting regulations in the state of Arizona that uh, had the clear 
effect, as a matter of fact, of uh, disabling Native American and uh, African American and Latino people from using the franchise as frequently, as easily as whites. Uh, one of the rules uh, banned the use of, um, banned the collection of mail-in ballots by other people. Right. Unless you mail Like a it. collection. Yeah. Uh, the, the pejorative term is ballot harvesting. That's a, a negative term. But what it, you know, in reality, what it meant was on these vast Indian reservations in Arizona where there's no public transportation, there's very few post offices, people can't get to them. Very few polling stations. Very few polling stations. So people would, you know, collect mail-in ballots in groups and, and you know, take them in, in a bunch uh, to the post office. And Arizona decided to ban that. So that obviously had a disparate effect on the people living in those reservations. And the, the other um, uh, practice that was at issue in, in the case, uh, Arizona law said that if somebody votes in the wrong precinct by mistake, uh, their entire ballot is thrown out. Even the votes for statewide offices where it shouldn't matter what precinct you voted yeah. in. That was found to have a disparate effect on uh, minority voters because it just happens that Arizona changes the precinct lines in those neighborhoods more often than in uh, white neighborhoods. And so it's quite common that people show up to vote where they voted last time and it turns out they're in the wrong place. Because they might not have known. Exactly. Um, so the question was what standard to use under Section 2 to um, uh, evaluate challenges to laws like that. And uh, Justice Alito wrote the majority opinion, right, five to four, and found that, well, you know, really, we, we look back at history. Uh, the uh, the people, the Congress that wrote the Voting Rights Act in 65, that amended the Voting Rights Act in 1982, uh, you know, these practices wouldn't really have bothered them. And this isn't what they're talking about. And, uh, you know, we just uh, kind of enough with this interference by the federal government into what uh, states and localities choose to do with their voting practices. And, and Justice Kagan wrote a blistering uh, dissenting opinion uh, about this, but um, but there we have it. And of course, uh, it's it's very troublesome given that we know that uh, the Republican Party nationwide has a strategy of trying to uh, erect the all kinds of obstacles to polling places and polling and voting practices. Uh, in minority communities in this country. It, you know, Linda, the thing that the voting rights really made me think about, so there was a legislative bill passed, right, at the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And it started making me think about the lines getting blurred between setting policy judicially versus setting policy legislatively. And then then I read in the book, which I had never heard this term, that there's a term called majoritarian difficulty, which expresses the dilemma at the heart of the power of judicial review, the power of the courts composed of unelected judges to overturn legislation enacted by democratically elected 
legislators. Have we seen a change in where the courts are setting policy that looks like a legislative prerogative? Well, I'm not sure we I'm not sure I would say have we seen a a change. I mean, of course, Brown against Board of Education overturned the racial policies regarding the public schools, uh, you know, across the South. So um, uh, I think what's happened now is that the power of the courts has been harnessed instead of um, expanding rights. Uh, it, it seems to be harnessed in, in service of uh, restricting rights mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, take the situation with abortion. So, uh, you know, it's hard to think of. I mean, I can't sit here and say the court has never uh, retracted a right that it has recognized previously. Yeah. Uh, but it's it's really startling that a right that has been, you might say, on the books, that's a little, you know, generic, but uh, for nearly 50 years, the court has it in its power to say, you know, forget that, never mind. And and, and that's a, a very concerning thing about judicial power, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I haven't, I haven't. Obviously, I've thought about it in a macro level. I haven't thought about it in a micro level like I did reading your book. And then that's what got me thinking that the judiciary is, in in some cases, overriding legislative agendas. And you're right. Brown versus Board of Ed did exactly that. It's just that there were a lot of us that agreed with that. Well, so... Um... So let's think for a minute about Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act. Right. So I spent a lot of time in, in, in the book talking about the case that was pending last term right. that would have had the effect of dismantling the Affordable Care Act. And if people remember in the uh, confirmation hearing for Amy Coney Barrett, Democratic senator after Democratic senator basically said, if she goes on the court, she will be the vote that will finally, this is the third attack on the Affordable Care Act that was pending before the court, will finally um, achieve the, the Republican agenda of getting rid of the Affordable Care Act. Uh, I mean, that would have been an example of what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Affordable Care Act not only had been you know, passed uh, 10 years before, but had been uh, uh, preserved in in you know dozens and dozens of votes in Congress where the Republicans tried to quote repeal it, and and those votes always failed, and so they turned to the court. Now the court did not play that game. The court didn't play. Yeah. Uh, the court found that. So the, that was a surprise. That was a, that was a surprise. <laughs> the court basically found that the state of Texas, which had brought the the challenge to the law, didn't have standing. Did, didn't have you know enough skin in the game to, to uh, justify it bringing, bringing a lawsuit. So that was kind of a way out, and the Affordable Care Act survived. But, but that was an example of an effort to use the court very aggressively to achieve what... Legislatively. What the, to achieve what they could not achieve legislatively. Right, right. So let's cover one more uh, topic before I ask some more general questions. So gun rights. Gun rights obviously hinge on the Second Amendment and the debate for 
ever has been whether the right to carry arms was related to the militia or related uh, to the individual. So let's start with what the Hiller case, Heller case decided and how is that informing a case now coming before the court from New York? Yeah, so Heller, uh, in, in 2008, the court held for the first time in a reading of history that had never been read that way before, said that the uh, intent of the Second Amendment was to uh, empower individuals to keep a gun at home for the purpose of self-defense. That was the holding of Heller obviously opened up a whole can of worms. Okay, you can keep it at home. How about outside your home? Uh, concealed carry, open carry, what kind of weapon, where to go, all that. All those questions were raised by Heller, not answered by Heller, and not answered in all the years since Heller. Uh, because why? Because there never were five votes on the court that could coalesce and, and, and find an answer. So to they the, never heard a case. They never heard a case. So the great frustration of conservatives on the court, like Justice Thomas, uh, more recently Justice Alito, Justice Gorsuch, who would say, we're turning the Second Amendment to a second-class right. That was their mantra. Right. So finally, in this last term that I write about, the court uh, decided to hear a case, a challenge to a New York law that makes it quite difficult to get a license to carry a concealed weapon outside your home. Uh, all the states have some kind of gun licensing law. New York has one of the stricter ones where you have to show not only that you're a law-abiding citizen and knows how to handle a gun, but that you have a special need for self-protection outside your home, a need that distinguishes you from all the rest of the population. Uh, so the law was upheld by the lower court. Um, the uh, an NRA affiliate organization in New York brought the lawsuit on behalf of two individuals. So that's the question. What does Heller mean? How far does it extend? Um, what does the Second Amendment mean today? And the case was argued uh, earlier this month. Mm -hmm. uh, it does seem that the New York law is not going to survive. And the question then is, is the Supreme Court going to become sort of the gun licensing agency for the whole country that, you know, you can, you can carry a gun here, but what about the subway? But what about the campus? But what about this, that, and the other thing? All those kind of questions came up during the argument. They didn't have very clear answers. It's, um, it's going to be a complicated question for the court, and, you know, we'll see. You know, the other thing that it it brings to mind in the two court cases that are currently uh, being decided, the Rittenhouse and the Aubrey case, um, there's an odd thing that I hadn't quite focused on that you realize in reading about them. They both are using, uh, both um, defendants are using self-defense as a um, reason for what they did. But you've got this kind of crazy thing going on. If if you're unarmed and I'm armed and I'm pointing a, a gun or a rifle at you and you, the unarmed person, feel that the way to protect yourself is to grab the gun from that person and now 
the one who owned the gun can say, well, my life was being threatened because he tried to take my gun and shoot me. So that's an odd juxtaposition of sort of having created the need for self-defense. I mean, do you, so do you think the courts that this New York case and, and this extension of the Heller case is going to begin to even address those kind of complexities? Well, you know, the court really has to think long and hard about what it's doing. I mean, the, the, the week that the court agreed to hear the New York case, there were three gun massacres somewhere in the country. I know. The country is drowning in guns, right? Uh, and then there was an article today in the front page of the New York Times about ghost guns where you can buy the components. Yeah. So we've got a real problem in this country, and uh, the court's going to be an enabler of that problem not going away if it rules the way it seems like it's going to rule. Mm. And, um, you know, your question is a good one, and the, it's going to be incumbent on the court to give us some kind of answer. Mm. We'll be right back in our conversation with Linda Greenhouse, the author of Justice on the Brink, after a word from our sponsor. Before we end, I hope you're going to help me come up with something that doesn't leave us too hopeless. But I, I want to ask this question that, you know, one of the things that we've watched um, Mitch McConnell do, so Trump appointed and got confirmed 200 judges. Right. Let's start with a little thing. How does that compare to what Obama got uh, approved? Do you know? Um it's it, it's it's more certainly more because the Republicans who held the Senate for most of Obama's uh, time in office, uh, you know, refused to give hearings, blocked a number of those uh, uh, vacancies. So when Trump came in, he had um, I think he had dozens of vacancies that Obama had not been permitted to fill. And he moved very quickly and made it a very high priority. Um, and as you say, more than more but than Linda, 200. But what, Linda, what's the, what is the legal or, or the legislative right to do that? Is that like, okay, my party's in the majority. I get to do what I get to do. Is it no more complicated than that? Yeah. I mean, the Constitution says the president shall nominate uh, you know, by and with consent of advising consent of the Senate, you know, through the confirmation process. So uh, the Senate really gets the last word. Because the other thing that I hadn't realized, and I'm not sure I even understand this, that there was a carve out from the filibuster rules for Supreme Court nominees. Is that is that correct? Well, what happened was... Um, the Democrats had gotten rid of the filibuster for the lower courts because the Republicans had used the filibuster to prevent uh, President Obama from filling the lower court seats. And for instance, the 
seat on the uh, Federal Appeals Court in, in Washington, D.C. that uh, John Roberts had, had filled before he was promoted to the Supreme Court was left vacant for five years. Hmm. And uh, So you know, did the Democrats get hoisted by their own petard? So, uh, <laughs> it sounds like it. So then, uh, you know, the Republicans... Um, in the in, in for the uh, Scalia vacancy, said, "Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, now we're going to repeal the filibuster for the Supreme Court. So, all they needed to confirm uh, Neil Gorsuch was, um, you know, fifty votes plus my Vice President Mike Pence, right? Um, so that's the situation. Yeah. So let let's we have like three minutes left. Um, this hour is certainly gone quickly. So let's let's talk about the future. Um, as I as we said in the introduction, we now have a conservative majority, but part of that conservative majority is John Roberts uh, as the Chief Justice. And not every nominee uh, behaves judicially in the way that might have been expected. Uh, there's a lot of talk about, um, John Roberts wants to be very sure that the court's integrity is a non-political um, organ, which was one of the things I wanted to talk about, but we won't get to that. So how do you see John Roberts' leadership? Because there were a couple of fissures even in the conservative block in the year that you discuss in the book. What do you what do you imagine, having studied the Supreme Court for decades? What will the Roberts Court look like, or, or will it turn into the Trump Court? Uh, what what's going what What do you guess is going to happen? Yeah, so that you know, is it the Roberts Court in more than name? Yeah, or is it the is it the Trump Court? Is really the the question that kind of runs through my book. And at the end of the day, I guess I give a kind of equivocal answer. We don't quite know the answer yet, but I think what we saw in this term is a reversion to the way the court was, frankly, when I started covering the court for the New York Times in the late 1970s, which was that uh, it, it wasn't what people that have come of age in the last couple of decades came to think of the court four justices on, on one side, four justices on the other, Anthony Kennedy in the middle. And if you're going to take a case to the court, you've got to make sure it's a case that's going to get Kennedy's support or you're not going to prevail. Classically, that's not the case. Uh, when I started covering the court, there were three or four justices kind of in the middle. Mm -hmm. If you were going to say who's the leader of the court, you'd be very hard-pressed to name one. And I think that's where we're going right now. So uh, you know, John Roberts' name is on the door. He has many skills, and he deployed many skills uh, in this last term that, that I describe. You know, but, he, it, it, just for our audience, that he's a strategic, patient j j judge. Yes, and, and he, he, he cares about the court. As I say, his name is on the door. Any chief justice cares about the court. Um but what kind of running room he's going to have with the five, you know, really seriously conservative people to his right. Um, you know, he's only one vote. They each get only one vote. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's a real challenge. 
And, and do you think, I mean, they all get one vote, but he's a chief justice and the leadership of a chief justice historically can help coalesce the justices in their thinking and strategy. Do you think in the makeup of this court, uh, Chief Roberts has the standing with the other justices to provide that kind of leadership? Not necessarily. I mean, I was surprised throughout the term by how snarky um, Justice Alito and Justice Gorsuch were in their is that unprecedented, their snarkiness? Ah, uh, well, precedent's a long time, so I, I you know, I, I can't say it's never happened, but it was very striking to me that they basically were kind of calling him a wimp when he wasn't going as aggressively or as quickly as they wanted to go. Yeah. So um, they didn't seem to be giving him any cover or cutting him any slack. So what would you, this is my last question, Linda, what would you, as someone who's observed the Supreme Court all these years, be comforted by, not in terms of your own politics, you know, whether it's liberal or conservative, but what would you like to see happen that would give you confidence that the Supreme Court is operating in the way it needs to, to preserve its integrity? I'd like to see the court uh, not set its docket in service of a conservative agenda. In other words, take the cases as they come, take the cases that involve uh, splits in the circuits where you know, federal law means one thing in the Ninth Circuit in California and a different thing in the Sixth Circuit in Cincinnati. Um, take those cases that the court needs to take and don't reach out to take cases that serve the agenda, like the Mississippi abortion case or the New York gun case. And that would give me a fair amount of comfort. Okay. Well, let's hope, let's hope that, that, uh, is what happened. Uh, We've been talking with Linda Greenhouse, the author of Justice on the Brink, The Death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, The Rise of Amy Coney Barrett, and 12 Months That Transformed the Supreme Court. Linda, thank you for having the conversation. I think that, you know, there's lots of details you, you had in there, which I was thrilled because I'm going to follow cases in a very different way now, understanding what you've talked about in the book. So thank you for joining us in this conversation. Thank you for um, writing this book. And I I look forward to your columns in the New York Times to uh, help us understand what's going on in this court. Thanks very much, Roxanne. It's a pleasure to be here. We've been talking with Linda Greenhouse, the author of Justice on the Brink. You've been listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio. Produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selleck, Johnny Diamond, and Lit Hub Radio. Our editor is Justin Alvarez. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Roxanne Cody, and thank you so much for listening.